and welcome to Architecture Insights, the podcast series produced by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. I'm your host, Di Snape. This episode of Architecture Insights uh, is a little bit of a flashback to Sydney Architecture Festival 2016 um, and features an interview with Laura Lee, who was our special guest um, at last year's festival, and Stuart Harrison. Professor Laura Lee, I should say, who is a registered architect and professor of architecture, most notably at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Um, but she's also taught in Belgium, Denmark and Switzerland. Her work focuses on the development and implementation of integrated design strategies and collaborative programs between the academy, government, industry and the profession. Her work is also concerned with the relationship between design education, policy, practice and research. Um, she was also in, based in Adelaide for a period of time. She was the 16th thinker in residence and she published, following on from that period, um, several key recommendations which led to the formation of the Integrated Design Commission for South Australia, which was the first of its kind in Australia and where I had the great privilege to work for a period of time. This interview was recorded in a quiet moment between all of the frantic events of the festival last year, which also coincided with the Association of Architecture Schools of Australasia, um, the AASA conference, as well as the launch of the draft of Better Placed, which has just recently been launched in its final form as an integrated design policy for the built environment of New South Wales. Laura was a special guest speaker at all of these events um, so she was kept very busy over the weekend and um, I've saved up this interview for you now as a little bit of a reminder of the sort of interesting conversations um, that you hear as part of Sydney Architecture Festival and I encourage you to go and check out the website sydneyarchitecturefestival.org you can find out about this year's guest speakers and the program and where it's all happening Um, It's a pretty exciting couple of days at the end of September. So, here we have Professor Laura Lee in conversation with Stuart Harrison. Project to practice innovating architecture is the theme of this year's AASA conference. Why innovate? We're looking at a series of examples and practitioners and academics who are teasing out innovation seeing ways in which this can be applied to an expanded version of practice. We're going to speak with some of the key people here today. I'm very fortunate to be joined by Professor Laura Lee, who is a eminent figure, particularly in the world of design-led planning. And Laura, of course, you were a thinker in residence in South Australia several years ago, and that led to some really wonderful work over there um, with the formation of the Integrated Design Commission. So since that since that time, what's what's moved in that space? Because we're sort of a lot of the work that's been happening in South Australia and subsequently in New South Wales has sort of um, leveraged off that report you did, the Integrated Design Strategy for South Australia. What are the key things you think that's evolved and changed in that space since then? Something I mentioned yesterday in the announcement of the new draft policy with the Minister um, for Planning, Rob Stokes, is the rise of what are called I-teams globally and Nesta, the UK Innovation Fund, and Bloomberg Philanthropies, as in Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, uh, they published a report on innovation teams that are helping governments to 
um, address significant challenges in society. Now, most of these are looking at delivering better services, whether it's in education or justice or um, safety, overall health, quality of life. Some of these are design-led, like the Barcelona Urban Lab. Um, There's a particularly good one in Denmark, Mind Lab. Um, There was a super um, high-impact one in Finland, uh, the Helsinki Design Lab. Mm. So I think we're seeing the rise of teams like the Integrated Design Commission across the globe. Um, So I'm not speaking particularly about architecture, but the ability of these multidisciplinary teams to help government. Which is where the emphasis really does need to be. I mean, obviously, this is a, this is a, this is the design of, of government of policy as much as anything else, as, a, as a, in addition to a kind of way in which you might approach design. Indeed, that's true. And as you know, the theme of the conference here is innovation. It was a subject yesterday. We were also with the City of Sydney and the Greater Sydney Commission yesterday, looking at cultural infrastructure. People are looking for ways to work together. Um, because they know that collaboration is going to lead to better solutions. So I would say that that's, um, that's a desire and, to some extent, a movement in this space. One of the things I think your work does is try to identify where the innovation can be. But I was going to ask you about where, what, the, what the value of innovation is and what are the costs of not innovating, and is there an urgency to innovation? Well, I quoted Einstein yesterday. I said, you can't solve a problem using the same thinking that that got you there. So uh, in that respect, innovation is necessary because we know we're facing unprecedented challenges, and the way we've addressed those up until now hasn't um, managed to move us forward. And we're facing climate change issues. We're facing safety issues. Um, living in Europe, terrorism, um, mass migration, these are major issues. And so um, innovative ways of looking at things and new processes, especially in relation to the way um, we deal with governance, is very important. So I think there is an urgency. I think it's important in the same way that we treat the word design, that we think of innovation in as much in process as we do product. Mm. Um, and that's something that holds true for design. We think we tend to think of it as an object, but it's also when you think of design as a verb, it's the way of it's a way of working. I think it'd be fair to say that your work is process focused. I mean one of the great legacies of the report and, and of the work you've shown today is an ability to map uh, and demonstrate particularly through the diagrams, how things work. Is half the thing or part of what you do that mapping exercise, working both a kind of this is how we do things now and this is how we can do things? Is the act of kind of drawing a process helpful in understanding it and then changing it, improving it? That's a wonderful question, and I think that's one of the benefits of working with design thinking is that you visualize, sometimes with very simple diagrams, to illustrate the way the world works now and then how it could work. And people are often afraid of change because they can't see the future, so they hang on to what they have. But when you can illustrate it, um, especially in a collaborative environment um, with stakeholders that have experience and don't have experience, Visualization and diagramming and mapping is a really powerful tool to move the conversation forward. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly there's, there's a famous diagram that came out of the integrated design strategy, um, the sp which is normally referred to as the spiral diagram, <laughs> which begins to outline a, a different way of working, just at a very simple level, just kind of things aren't necessarily always linear. You know, things might... How do you try and capture the often iterative or cyclical nature of a process? And sometimes this is quite confronting for people who've worked often in a very linear linear way. So I think the diagram's got a long way to help to map out a process that's not necessarily linear. Do you think that's right? Another very good question. Um, yes, the spiral tends to be the most memorable diagram that came out of South Australia. What it illustrates is that when we're looking at a problem, we can't just think about the economic consequences or the environmental consequences or the social consequences, which unfortunately sometimes tend to come last. So if we look at these simultaneously and we put design thinking up front, I think there's a great potential for planning incentives um, and regulation to be more open-minded and more innovative because they can see the greater potential of working with these dimensions, the triple bottom line, mm -hmm. in a much better way. I think if you try and put numbers on this, the arguments become pretty potent. I think you use some figures around $300 billion the federal government in the U.S. spends on infrastructure every year, and that plays out to a $3 trillion in terms of on life cycle costs for projects. So making some adjustments to the Titanic, to, you know, to the ship at the start can alter the course, the spend, a lot later on. Does that kind of thinking, the financial and economic modelling, help in making the arguments for design thinking at the start of processes? Absolutely, it does. And it's a shift in thinking from cost to value, mm. and that that value is not just um, bricks and mortar, but in fact it's social impact, it's environmental impact. And we're now at a f stage in the professions where we can actually model how things will perform over a long period of time. And I think there's a, a much greater recognition and um, responsibility to do that kind of modeling. And I think when professions like ours can demonstrate that to governments, um, to politicians who are making decisions on behalf of populations, I mean citizens, their responsibility, I think that's a great partnership. I wanted to ask you a little bit about, uh, in, your, in your talk today, you talked about trying to identify where the innovation happens sometimes, and you cited the um, example of Shigura Ban's um, often frequent use of cardboard tubes. Um, did you find out where that moment happens? Is there a consistency in terms of where that innovative moment occurs, or does it, is it subject to so many different uh, forces that it could occur kind of anywhere in a, in a, in a, in a process? Or is there a, is there a moment where things tend to happen? You could say that there are generally two phenomena. One is when you reach a roadblock and you have to go in a different direction. And that roadblock can be a number of things. It can be the lack of resources. It can be a restrictive um, legislation. Um, and then you've got to find a way to, to um, mediate that. Mm. But the other is just the desire for something better. Mm. And you again, map another way of working. Um, but that often comes at great cost to the, let's say, innovator. Uh, but for the, the projects or the offices or studios that we've studied, those are generally, it's not necessarily a moment, more a motivation for having to do something a different way. 
And can that innovation, the impetus to innovate, can it come down from the top? Obviously the federal government here in Australia has made a reasonably clumsy attempt to try and turn us all into innovators in a sort of top-down way, just by sort of setting a mood. Can it come that way or does it really have to come through the bottom or through constraints, as you're saying, or is it a, is it a lateral movement? Can a government say we all need to innovate and by kind of sheer force of will create the atmosphere for innovation or does it come out of constraints, necessity in the sort of traditional ways these things have? Well, what's very positive is that it's um, receiving a lot of attention and it's recognised that innovation needs to happen. Does it come from the top down or the bottom up? I think it comes through collaboration and I think um, providing a platform where people and companies and studios feel that they can enter into uh, an experimental and innovative environment is very positive. Um, there was a, a very brave question yesterday in the opening or the uh, launch for the draft policy, and that is innovation often comes with risks. Mm. And that's, I think, something that the government has to... Um, sort of recognize that uh, there is a risk involved, but it's a risk well worth taking. And it can be a very calculated risk, uh, but it's nevertheless something that um, uh, needs to be understood. I think a lot of architects often get scared of risk in the same way their clients are. But I think actually understanding risk, you can then begin to understand, quantify, draw. You can actually begin to talk about the, the risks of not doing things well. There is, a, there is a cost of, there's a risk in, often procurement is very risk averse, but if you can turn it on its head, would you agree there's an opportunity to say, well, the risk of not procuring this properly, not getting a design that outcome is this, and this is risky, like bad design is risky? Well, it's the same expression, you can't afford not to. Mm. And I think perhaps Australia is at that point. You can't afford not to, mm. uh, recognising some of the challenges that you're facing. But it goes back to two earlier points that I was making, one about the I-teams, um, which is those are units that can do sort of prototyping and testing of a new idea on a small scale, make a demonstration, um, invite the failure, do mm. iterations before it has a grand rollout. Um, the same holds true, you know, right now the margins are so thin for architects and their clients that you can't build in that prototyping and iteration. So to find a space where people can bring, um, bring problems, um, bring ideas, and then have them tested on that level, and then... Um, before there's an investment, mm. they know that the rate of success is going to be that much greater. So those I-teams are, are sort of sandpits, essentially. They're, they're opportunities to do the innovate. They create a space for the innovation to occur. Precisely. And now the big wave is policy. Mm. You know, How are you dealing with big, messy, wicked problems that are affecting tens of thousands, if not millions? So they're laboratories, experimental laboratories. And quite from that point of view, and I have to say for politicians or the government, um, it's money well spent uh, mm. because you get to do the testing and you get real experts on whatever issue it is, but you also get designers and this exploratory model and way of thinking that opens up new avenues that they would never would have considered. 
Finally, Laura, I just wanted to briefly mention Professor um, Thomas Fisher. I spoke to him earlier in the year at the conference in, in Adelaide, and he was talking about expressing one way in which we can deal with this kind of reframed world, and particularly through value, is talking to clients around kind of how much money you're saving them rather than how much money you're spending. It was a very simple, clear sort of demonstration. Are you, um, do you agree with uh, Fisher's general, um, both that very specific idea and also his general sort of diagnosis of the profession? Well, if Tom listens to this, I love Tom, and I have all his books, and he's at University of Minnesota, mm. so of course I know him personally in his latest book, um, Designing Our Way to a Better World. It has amazing nuggets in it, and um, he used an example in the conference because I read, of course, um, some of the articles afterward, and this is also in his book. Our tendency is to think that the first thing that we need is a building. Mm. And yet when sometimes you sit down with clients or various stakeholders, um, they, when you can take apart the problem and learn exactly what, in fact, their goal is, maybe the answer isn't a building. Maybe it's a service. Maybe it's a relationship that they need to form in order to get to something better. Tom is also very interested in design in the public interest, and I think that's also a particular wave in the United States that is really significant and really important. That Minnesota model that you've helped develop is really about connecting kind of existing entities together, essentially. It's a networking exercise, and it encourages the sharing of knowledge. One of the things that I did this morning in my keynote was compare architecture, the profession of architecture, to law and medicine, where law is based on cases that are a matter of public record, so people can share knowledge because they have to. Mm. In the medical community, they share because it's a matter of life and death. We don't work that way. Um, but we need to, because we have issues at stake that are just as great as that. And I think when you give um, practices a forum in which they can share, um, they're excited to do so. But right now it's proprietary because it's so competitive. So that was one of the really significant parts of the, of the um, Minnesota model. It was not just that we were embedding research, and that we had students, young faculty, and offices, even small and medium-sized offices working together, and also contractors. But it was the, um, the knowledge loop that we were forming between the academy and practice. And the fact that the academy is kind of neutral zone, there is more comfort in sharing than, um, than you would amongst say competitors but the fact that they joined a consortium that was in the university and they could enjoy the resources of the university it cracked open something really significant that created that space exactly yeah. exactly yeah it's a great it's a great model um professor laura lee thanks so much for your time thank you very much pleasure Thank you for listening to Architecture Insights. Keep an eye out for our next Sydney Architecture Festival interview that uh, Stuart had with Indy Johar. I'll put that online shortly. Thank you very much both to Laura Lee and Stuart Harrison for taking the time to have that conversation. Thank you for listening to Architecture Insights. I'm Di Snape.